All right, we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel, picking up um, after our little break in Samuel chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 25. That's the whole chapter. And this whole chapter is really Samuel's uh, farewell address. Um, he's going to be uh, stepping down from his political position. And so he gives a farewell address uh, to the nation. And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, maybe some of you have, some of you are retired, uh, to kind of like give a final goodbye uh, address to the people that you worked with maybe or something like that, uh, where you kind of, you get a chance to, to leave and maybe you just think about it, right? Maybe especially on, you know, those bad days when the people that you work with are really annoying to you and you're really like, oh man, if I could, if I could just give a speech and then walk out of here and never see any of these people again, what I would tell them. You know, that's probably, I mean, I, I think you probably have those, you know, fantasies sometimes of like, man, if I could just tell everybody off or like just write one email where I really said everything I want to say and reply all, send to everybody and then never see them again, man, that's what would I tell them? And that's kind of the position that Samuel is in, right? He's kind of in that position and he's going to be doing some telling off. I mean, he's a prophet after all, but He's going he's gonna to kind of wrap up his, his role as the leader of Israel um, in this passage today. He's going to start with a review of his own record in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 12. It says this, Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before Yahweh and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said, Yahweh is witness against you today, against you, and is anointed to witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So Samuel uh, has been, an, uh, is, is, he says, I'm old and gray, right? He's saying, like, I'm moving on. Saul has been anointed uh, and selected by Lot as the first king of Israel to really succeed uh, Samuel, even though it's in a new role, he is becoming the new, you know, head of state, so to speak. He's, he's becoming the leader. And, and Saul had been anointed and he'd been selected by lot before all the people. Um, but he, not everyone was on board still at that point. Right, that's kind of where we left off chapter 10. It said, hey, some people were like, no, nah, can't be this guy. So there's still some doubt, still some, it's not quite time for Saul to take over entirely. But then, the last time we were in Samuel, Pastor Jason took you through uh, chapter 11, where Nahash and the Ammonites threaten Israel, and Saul comes and leads a military campaign uh, to defeat them. And so he's then proven himself in, uh, in, in battle. And so now everyone's on board, and it's time for Samuel to transfer power formally to Saul. But notice the difference, because there's something different happening here, right? You have Samuel, who's the last in the line of the judges that we see through the book of Judges, really from the time of uh, Joshua, and then through, through that time. Since, ever since Moses, they've had these judges who 
they were in charge, right? They were executing law and order in the nation. They were leading the nation. They would travel on these circuits and hear cases and, and decide things. But, but they were not the same as a king. And we see them prove themselves differently. We see a big difference between the way Samuel and Saul proved their right to rule, right? Saul proved his right to rule by defeating the Ammonites, military power, right? He rallies the troops. Remember, he, he cuts up those oxen and sends them throughout Israel and says essentially like, if you don't come join me, the same thing's going to happen to you. Like, that's pretty heavy-handed. That's a pretty pretty heavy way to, to rally the troops. But he rallies them. They defeat the Ammonites. Everyone's like, yes, Saul, you are the king or because of how militarily powerful you were. But that's not how Samuel proved himself, right? Samuel had proved himself way back in chapter 3 in this way. It says, Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh and Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Samuel proves himself by preaching the word, by proclaiming the word, by the term they would use, prophesying. And simply by the power of his prophecy, by how faithfully he rendered the word of God, they said, you are a prophet. And everyone knew it. And everyone agreed. And that's how he becomes the leader of Israel. It's how he becomes the judge, is simply by faithfully executing the word of God. Very different from Saul. Having a judge, having a king are two very different things. But Samuel demands that the Israelites give him a performance review, right? An exit interview of sorts, where he says, okay, let's put it out there. Let's put my record out there. If I've stolen from anyone, if I've defrauded anyone, if I've oppressed anyone, if I've taken a bribe, you need to tell me now. Right? And the response is a resounding no. They say, no, you've never done anything uh, that was corrupt. And that's partially for his own protection, right? He's partly asking for this review for his own protection. He's about to step out of the role as judge, as the one who's in power, and hand that to someone else. That's why he says, he says, Yahweh's a witness, but he says, Yahweh and his anointed. He's talking about Saul. He's saying, okay, before God and your new king, I haven't done anything, right? If so, I'll offer you restitution. I'll, I'll fix this for you. Why is he doing this, though? Because he's about to hand over that power. And so Saul, someone could easily come to Saul and say, Samuel stole my whole house. Like he, he took my land, and, and, and he's a thief. And, and now all of a sudden, Saul has to <laughs> execute judgment against Samuel. Right? He's stepping out of that position of power. He needs to make sure his record is clear before he does that. But he doesn't put his confidence only in the testimony of the people, right? He says that God is the only true witness of all that he's done. He knows that his record is clear because he sees himself in, in, in God's eyes. He says, God is a witness to how I have executed my office. We might look as a, as a reference to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10, where it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind and give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Samuel's not claiming sinlessness here. Let's be clear. He's not saying, I'm perfect. I've never done anything. He's saying, as far as my role as judge, as far as my professional record is, consider, is considered, 
I haven't done anything. He's above reproach. In other words, his, he's done his job well. And we should consider in our lives before people, like, would you ask this question in front of everyone you've ever interacted with? Would you put this question before? Because he's before the entire nation. And he's saying, have I done anything to any of you in my role as judge? Have I taken anything from you? Have I executed just, uh, have I been unjust in anything, any of my decisions? But he's above reproach. And that's the standard that we should, should strive for. It's something that God requires of those who will lead his people. We see this in the New Testament in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, where Paul lays out the qualifications in the church for those who will lead the church, elders or overseers. He says, this is, he's talking to Titus and says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's reward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the standard that God holds his leaders to, but all of us in some way are leaders over something, over someone, or over our children, over some group of friends or influence where we have influence, where we have leadership. We are called to this role as well, to be above reproach to execute justice in our relationships. So having cleared his record, Samuel's going to move on to give a warning to the people. Verses 6 through 18. Samuel said to the people, Yahweh is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before, before Yahweh concerning all the righteous deeds of Yahweh that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot Yahweh their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to Yahweh and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And Yahweh sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when Yahweh your God was your king. But now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. If you will fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against his, the commandments of Yahweh, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow Yahweh your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh but rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you and your king. And therefore stand still and see the great thing that Yahweh will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon Yahweh that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of Yahweh and asking yourselves for a king. 
So Samuel called upon Yahweh, and Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. So having set his own record straight, he also wants to set Yahweh's record straight and, and lay out the relationship between Israel and Yahweh and how it has gone through their history. And he points to the book of Judges and shows this pattern that the Israelites have. He, he lays out several different instances and different people. So I kind of put a fill in the blanks here because you can kind of trace this pattern happening throughout the Old Testament where the Israelites are oppressed by fill in the blank, right? The Philistines, uh, the Ammonites, right? Whoever it is, they've got some enemy that's oppressing them. They cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh sent them somebody, sends some, some leader, right? Moses and Aaron were one when they were oppressed in Egypt, um, and then he even lists uh, these, these guys throughout the book of Judges, Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel himself. And then Yahweh used those people to rescue them, right? To guide them back to him and ultimately to rescue them. And then they forget about Yahweh, their God. And then as a result, they're oppressed by a new people group and they cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh sends them a new leaders and then Yahweh uses those leaders to rescue them and then they forget about Yahweh, their God. And this cycle just keeps repeating. And that's what he's pointing out to them. And he's pointing out that specifically because he's saying, now you're trying something new, but you've got the wrong idea of what's going to help you. Right? You, you did that with me. Samuel says, I was one of these guys that the Philistines were oppressing you. You cried out to God. God sent me. I led you to repentance. And then you defeated the Philistines. And now it's happening again. And you think that you've got a new solution to this problem. This king. You asked for a king. You wanted a new system. But you have a new government, but the same problem. We also see in this that, that Samuel reveals the real reason they asked for a king. Right? Remember back when they first asked for a king in chapter 8, they say it's because Samuel's sons are corrupt. Right? They say your sons are corrupt, um, which seems like something they might have brought up in his request of like, hey, how's my record? Because they might have said, well, you did a bad job raising your kids. Right? That might have been something that they, they would have said, but they don't bring that up. And here, Samuel reveals the real reason they asked for a king, which is the Ammonites. Nahash and the Ammonites started to pressure them. They felt that pressure and they thought, we need a king. We need a military leader, a strong military leader. Because that's one thing that a king could bring you that's different from how they did things before. Because before they were kind of more like a militia, right? They, they, if they had some military threat, they kind of sent word to all the tribes and, hey, send people to help us. But there was no, nothing behind it, right? There was no threat behind it if they didn't respond. And so now they're saying, no, we want a king who's a real military leader who could then force people to send and, and hold kind of a standing military and be a much stronger military commander if we had a king. And so they want this king because they're feeling this pressure from the Ammonites. And he's a scary dude. Nahash, right, tells them, oh, we'll make peace with you if you just gouge out your eye, eyeballs, right? That's, that's the threat that he gives them. So he's a scary dude, but they think, hey, we need this new government. We need this king instead. That will solve our problems. But all they're doing is, is putting a new solution, but it's not one that will actually solve the problem. 
Because they think this king is going to protect them, but the king is ultimately not going to protect them from Yahweh's punishment, which is what they're really facing. Right? When they're being oppressed by these different enemies, it's because Yahweh removes his hand of protection. And they're attacked by these enemies. And, and they seem to think that a king will be able to stop that from happening. But notice even verse 15, where, God's, where, where he says, if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you and your king. Saying your king's not going to help you. Your king's not going to change anything. It doesn't really change their relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh is still their ultimate authority. And the primary job of the king will be to represent Yahweh before the people and vice versa. The king might be a representative, but it doesn't change their relationship with him. It doesn't change their relationship with their God. And we see this same problem persist to this day, where we go after alternative gods, alternative solutions to the problems that we face. We can see this pattern play out in individual lives today, where we're oppressed by something, right? We have some problem that we face. Something happens to us. We cry out to Jesus. And then Jesus usually uses human beings to, to help us, right? Usually comes through another human being, sends us someone into our lives who usually points us back to him. It might be a church, it might be a friend, it might be somebody, but usually somebody that then helps you. And Jesus uses those people to rescue you and ultimately to tell you the gospel and save, your, save you from uh, your eternal punishment, but even in the problems that we face, or often help relieve those problems, help you get out of that situation, maybe get you free from some addictions or something like that. But then you forget about Jesus. Once everything goes back to normal, you feel good, you forget about Jesus, and then you encounter new problems, and you re repeat this cycle. We see this cycle repeat among believers in the church today. And in the same way, we often then think, oh, there must be a different solution. It's not that I'm taking my eyes off of Jesus. It's that I don't, for example, have enough money. And if I just got enough money, then I wouldn't have this problem. And so maybe I just need to get more money, and that will be the solution. That's the same thing as the Israelites going, oh, we just need a king. We just need a king. I just need to solve this problem in my life, and then, and then everything will be fine, and I won't really need Jesus. But it doesn't change our need for him. We can add these other things too, but it, it doesn't change anything. And ultimately, it's things that won't satisfy. This is why Moses warns the people in Deuteronomy chapter 11, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. The problem is that our hearts are often deceived into thinking that there's something else that can solve our problems when ultimately it is only Jesus. Because not, not all of our problems are a result of sin, right? Not all of our problems are a result of sin. Not even all the enemies that Israel faced were the result of sin. We don't actually see any indication that this Ammonite threat is a result of Israel's sin. We don't see that. And it might not have been the case. But God is still their protector. He's still the one that they should turn to. In the same way, we have things that happen to us that are not a result of our sins, just a result of the broken world that we face, right? It might be illnesses that you face. It might be you know, layoffs or something like that that is just to do with the economy and, and it's not like your performance or anything that you've done that was wrong, but it's just problems that you're faced with. 
But still, ultimately, Jesus is the answer to all those problems, whether they're from within or without. Samuel issues this warning to them, and then he wants to give them some some backup, right? He wants to give them some proof of Yahweh's power, of Yahweh's ability to trump their king, right? That his, his ability to still punish them, to still... Uh, discipline them even if they have a king. And so he's going to give them an example that's not military. He's going to give them some proof of Yahweh's power that has nothing to do with military. He tells them, and he kind of turns into, um, I love it because he sounds like he's in like a, a mafia movie. Right? Where he's like, is it not the wheat harvest today? Hmm? It's a nice, nice wheat field you got there. Be a shame if something happened to it. You know, that's really like that's the I feel like that's the tone where he's like, yeah, it's it's a wheat harvest today, isn't it? I get an idea. I get an idea, right? And and he sends this thunderstorm. Now the thing that's weird weird about that is the wheat harvest occurs in May or June, and so this is a miraculous time for a, a, a true thunderstorm to occur. It's not likely that it would happen, and actually, it's devastating for it to happen. It's actually very dangerous to the, to the nation for rainfall to occur at this time because rainfall, when the wheat is standing and dry and ready to harvest, can damage the crop. Like one day of rain might damage the crop. If it was an extended rainstorm, it could spoil the crop entirely. And uh, and, and I thought that that was probably the case based on just the, the text itself, but I wanted to check, so I did some Googling. At the end of your uh, study guides, if you picked up a study guide, um, I have an article called Wet Weather, Potential Wheat Harvest Delays and Grain Quality. Uh, this is from the CORN newsletter. That's an acronym for Crop Observation and Recommendation Network, um, which is a extension of the, the Ohio State University. This was published in July of this year. And, uh, and it, it basically just outlines in a very like academic uh, way, agricultural academic way, uh, the, the danger that late rain has on wheat crops. Um, so I thought it was fascinating that like this is today that they're writing this and explaining these problems that could happen. And this is what was happening at this time. And the Israelites recognize it. Right? They see the threat that this rainfall poses. Uh, to, to their crops, which is a, is a, it could be very dangerous to them. It could spoil the whole crop and threaten the nation with famine. So then we see um, their response to it in chapter 12, verses 19 through 25. It says, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants and to Yahweh your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid, for you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear Yahweh and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. 
But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So notice their response. Like this rainfall starts happening. You can imagine the people just getting soaking wet, thunder and lightning in the sky. And, and they say, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die. That's not hypothetical. That's not a hypothetical death. They're saying, literally, if this rain doesn't stop, it'll spoil the crop and we will die. There will be famine. We'll have mass deaths, hundreds, if not thousands of people dying if this, if this rain destroys this crop. It's a very real threat for them. And so Samuel does it. He prays for them and he assures them. He assures them that they would not die. The thunderstorm's merely a warning that they shouldn't turn aside, they should serve Yahweh alone. They, they should not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. And that's a good warning for us as well. Again, when we consider the things that we might turn aside to, oftentimes the things we turn aside to are things that cannot profit or deliver. They don't benefit us. They don't ultimately deliver what we need. Jesus is the one who delivers what we need. But Samuel assures them that Yahweh will not forsake his people. Notice verse 22. Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. That is a promise that God has made to his people Israel. And it's a promise that holds true to this day which is an important thing to keep in mind as we see the events on the news right now and what's happening in Israel, that God has promised that he will always reserve a righteous remnant in Israel. He has not done with Israel. He, they, he has pleased them, him to make them a people for himself. We also see Samuel's promise that he assures the people that he will not cease to pray for them. Right? He says, far be it for me that I should sin and stop praying for you. That is part of my job, part of my calling. What Samuel is stepping down from is his political role, right? His role as judge, as leader of the people. He's not stepping away from his role as prophet and priest. So he's saying, as a priest, I'm not going to stop praying for you. And as a prophet, I'm not going to stop instructing you in the good and right way. He's like, you're not getting rid of me entirely. I'm still going to instruct you. I'm still going to tell you what's right and wrong. I'm still going to pray for you. I'm just stepping out of this role as the leader of the nation. And his final instruction for them is to consider what great things God has done for them. And this is, again, good advice for us. And it's good advice for not turning aside from him. Right? If we remember, if we make it part of our practice to remember what he has done for us, then we'll not turn aside. If we remember that, it's in forgetting about what God has done for us that causes us to then drift away. If we remember, we stay in that and we stay close to him because we know how much he has rescued us, how much he has done for us. I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, live a life that will stand up to scrutiny. That's what Samuel did. That's why he's able to ask this question before all the people, have I done anything to you? Number two, turn to Jesus as the answer to all of your problems. Recognize that it can only be found in him. The only peace and hope we can find is in him. And then lastly, remember what God has done for you. 
One of the ways we do that is through communion. We're going to take communion here in just a minute in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. And it's part of how we practice that remembrance. If you are uh, here today and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome and encouraged to take communion with us. Uh, the, the ushers will be coming by uh, with baskets. You can take one and, and join us in communion. After that, we'll, we'll sing a closing song. And then uh, after that, uh, there'll be a prayer team available right over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to pray for you. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this word um, that is recorded for us of, of Samuel's farewell address and, and the things that he thought were most important to pass on to the nation of Israel as he was uh, stepping down from leadership. I pray that they would resonate in our hearts today, God, that we would um, live lives that, that can stand up to scrutiny, that were um, submitted to you, that we would turn to, to you to, as the answer to all of our problems, that we would not turn aside to other things, but keep our eyes focused on you by remembering what you have done for us. I pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.